In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Thank you to Doug for uh, a really difficult uh, reading, uh, extra brownie points uh, to him. I have been thinking this week about dancing. You remember back in junior high, uh, those dances in the gym or the activity hall, all the guys on one side, all of the girls lined up on the other side? I remember the first dance, uh, the official dance that I was invited to. Uh, my grandmother, bless her heart, uh, taught me the waltz step. You really haven't lived until you have tried to one, two, three, one, two, three to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Um, you remember your first slow dance? Back in the late 70s, early 80s, Procol Harum, the band, had a song called Whiter Shade of Pale. Um, nobody actually danced to it. You just sort of stood there and moved your weight back and forth from one side to the other. If, if it was somebody that you wanted to be dancing with, or even if it was somebody that you didn't, it seemed like it went on forever um, because it did. It was like 10 minutes long. In the Bible, uh, dancing is a reoccurring metaphor for the spiritual life. Let them praise God's name with dancing, writes the psalmist. King David, um, who had more moral indiscretions than Presidents Clinton and Nixon put together, uh, David is remembered as dancing before the Lord with all of his might, which had little to do with his liturgical dance steps as it did his enthusiastic relationship with God. I danced in the morning when the world was begun. I danced in the moon and the stars and the sun. I came down from heaven and I danced on the earth. And of course, Jesus describes those who hear the gospel, who hear the good news, but who do not respond this way. He says, to whom shall we compare this generation? We played the flute and you did not dance. I still remember years ago, a group of senior highs, we were taking a summer mission trip to Charlottesville, Virginia. I think Carol Van Hoff was actually on that trip and uh, we were painting houses for seniors. There were a number of groups that were there with us, and one of the youth leaders uh, was a Christian DJ, and he suggested that one night we get all the groups together for a dance. We had a number of kids in our group that didn't really like dancing, uh, sort of the frozen chosen in, in practice, uh, in rehearsal, but, um, but this... DJ had a wonderful idea. He decided that we would turn the lights down so you couldn't see too well. Always a dangerous thing when you've got a group of senior highs together. But he, he, it worked. Um, he got us into big circles so there were no couples. There was no showboating. And then he cranked up the music so loud that uh, you couldn't hear any complaining. And we all danced. Uh, encouraging each other, no matter how terrible we were. We all encouraged each other. I still remember the freedom and the joy of, of that night, literally decades later. Some of you will remember church-sponsored dances when you were younger. 
On the other hand, others of you grew up in denominations where dancing was prohibited. Pity. The church has never been really good at helping us to integrate our sexuality and our spirituality. On the other hand, those conservative churches understood something that deep down we all know, and that is that in life, God is not the only one who invites us to dance. There are other partners whose invitations can be very alluring and and tempting. I am remembering uh, a Harrison Ford movie uh, from a while back. It was called Clear and Present Danger. Uh, They actually used it to develop a a very popular TV series about um, a CIA agent named Jack Ryan, who the President of the United States assigns to go up against a bunch of Colombian drug lords. And Ryan has some idea of doing this in a legal way. But his partner, a guy by the name of Ritter, has a different idea, what he thinks is a better idea. So he sets up this covert military operation behind Ryan's back. By the time Ryan finds out about it, there are bombs going off and people have been killed. After almost getting killed himself, Ryan winds up in the Oval Office with this nasty-looking cut over his right eye, confronting the president for his part in this scandal, which the president at first denies, until Ryan announces his intentions to take what he knows and bring them before the Senate Oversight Committee. At that point, the president's face goes slack. But after a brief pause, he begins to grin and says, you're not going to do that, Jack. You've got yourself a chip in the big game now. You're going to tuck that away. You're going to save it for a time when your own life is on the line, and then you're going to pull it out, and I'm going to cash it in for you. I am? Jack asks. Sure, the the country can't afford another deception that goes all the way to the top. You'll take the blame. You'll be punished, but it won't amount to much. Just a slap on the wrist. You know, Jack, the old Potomac two-step. To which Ryan responds, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I don't dance. Which is a wonderful line, but it only works because Ryan takes no pleasure in it. In fact, he looks miserable through the whole movie right up until the last scene where he raises his right hand and swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the entire Senate. Ryan is a servant of the truth, which he cares more about than his own comfort and safety and reputation. What happened after the credits rolled was anybody's guess. I mean, it's entirely possible that Jack Ryan wound up discredited and disgraced uh, by a Senate that conspired to support the president instead of the truth. But I don't think that mattered much to Jack Ryan. His purpose was not to become a hero. 
but rather to serve the truth. So I offer you this extended movie review because my hope is that it will get you ready for Daniel, who tells a similar story in his book about three Jewish princes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Persian names given to them by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, three handsome men, maybe not as handsome as Harrison Ford, but each of them well-versed in the ways of wisdom. The king special ordered them from Jerusalem after he had sacked that holy city, along with a bunch of other nobles who he now intended to train for his court. He brought them to live in the royal palace. He taught them Persian literature. He fed them from the royal table. At least he tried to. Daniel and his three friends stood out from the others because they refused to eat the king's food. Why? Because it wasn't kosher. So here they are, conquered princes from a land that really doesn't exist anymore, and yet they remained true to their ways. They asked for plain vegetables and water, and they got it. Furthermore, they grew healthy on it to the point where after three years of training, the king recognized them as the brightest and the best of all the young princes from Israel. He appointed them to his court. He relied on their counsel. Eventually, he made Daniel the governor of Babylon, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there to help him. Now, the kosher food incident should have warned the king these princes had other loyalties. So sometime later, the king erected a huge golden statue in Babylon. It was nine feet wide. It was 90 feet high. He invited every VIP in Persia to the dedication ceremony. He had a huge band to play. And when the time came, his herald told all of those honored guests exactly what to do. When they heard the band strike up, they were to fall down and worship the golden statue. Anyone who failed to do so would be thrown at once into the furnace of blazing fire. If you have ever taken a pottery class, you know something about what that furnace looked like. It was a large brick kiln with one opening at the top and one on the ground level. Plenty big enough for three, even four people to walk around in it when it was cold. Big enough to cook the same number when it was hot. Death by fire being not at all uncommon in those days. There were probably as many bones in the furnace as there were pottery shards. So everyone at the dedication knew that the king meant business. The furnace was stoked. The band began to play, and everyone who heard it fell on their faces. Everyone, that is, except for three young Jewish princes, way at the back of the room, the same three that the king had lifted up above all the rest. They stood there like tall oaks 
while everybody else lay face down in the dirt. I expect that it humiliated the king, although that was not their purpose. They meant no disrespect, really. They simply could not bow down to the statue any more than they could eat the king's food. They could not worship a golden statue. In a furious rage, the king ordered them to the front of the crowd and explained again the procedures one last time. When the band plays, you are to fall down in front of the gods and worship them. They could do that or they could roast in his own handmade hell. It was their choice. The story, of course, says that they were saved. The king was so unnerved by the presence of a fourth figure inside the furnace, one that he did not put there, who looked all the world like a god. Seeing that mysterious fourth, the king called the whole thing off. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the furnace smelling like roses rather than ashes. The king immediately promoted them. It was the best possible ending one which Daniel preserved for all time. Obey God, and God will rescue you. But I don't think that was the point. According to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the point was to obey God no matter what, no matter the cost, no matter if anybody else recognizes it as the truth. When Nebuchadnezzar gave them that one last chance to change their minds, they didn't presume to tell him what God would do because they didn't know. They simply told him what they would not do in the politest possible terms. Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. It was that simple. And as far as I'm concerned... That's the high point of the whole story when all three of them said, we will not. Everything after that was just gravy, which is what makes this such a great story about discipleship, especially the kind that leads to a cross. It is a reminder to us of how tempting it can be to dance with other gods how dangerous it can be to stand up and say, I'm sorry, I don't dance. To Nebuchadnezzar, to Pilate, to any other leader. Jerusa Duford is an evangelical writer, speaker. You probably have not heard her name before, but you know of her grandfather, Billy Graham. In a recent article in USA Today, DeFord writes this, I've spent my entire life in the church with every big decision guided by my faith. But now I feel homeless. 
Like so many others, I feel disoriented as I watch the church I have always served turn their eyes away from everything that it teaches. I hear from Christian women on a daily basis who all describe the same thing, a tug on their spirit, telling them that something is not right here. I hear that tug, she says, every time I hear our president talk about how government housing has no place in American suburbs. The current administration, you remember, dismantled the 2015 affirmative fair housing rule, which required local governments to be proactive in ensuring fair housing in their districts. It was an attempt to give some teeth to the Fair Housing Act in order to fight against the segregation, racial and economic, that still pervades our society. I feel that tug, says DeFord, when I think about how Jesus called us to look out for the poor, how he was always showing compassion and love for those who were most in need. But to listen to the rhetoric today, you would think that there is an apocalyptic assault on life in the suburbs going on. A clear attempt to try to make, let's be honest, suburban housewives so afraid of losing their lifestyle that they forget how to live a life of faith. And in all this, says DeFord, the church remains silent. I feel that tug on my spirit, she goes on to say, every time I hear someone in the administration refer to immigrants as drug dealers and rapists and murderers, foreigners, the very people whom the scripture tells us to welcome. Really, I'm not one who is one for proof testing, but you have to be quite intentional to miss the Bible's message when it comes to foreigners. Deuteronomy 10, so you also must love the foreigner, since you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. The entire book of Ruth in the Old Testament is about an immigrant who is welcomed into the country and who becomes the great-great-grandmother of the King David and thereby becomes the great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Jesus himself, by the age of two, was a political refugee fleeing from the rage of King Herod. The Bible doesn't give us a specific immigration policy for our days. God leaves that up to us. But the Bible is very clear about what our attitude towards the foreigner must be. But if you say enough bad things about people long enough then you can justify doing just about anything to them. And so our policies included separating children from their parents with no provisions as to how they would be reunited. And the church, following the one who said, let the children come unto me, remains silent. What does the Lord require of you? asks the prophet Micah. And in one of Billy Graham's favorite 
responses. He says, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. We could spend the rest of the morning talking about what biblical justice is and how it may differ from legal justice, but a good place to begin would be to realize that with God's justice, it is never just about us. It is never just about my neighborhood or my race or my nation or my rights. We could try to uncover the roots, the Hebrew and the Greek, behind our translation of the word kindness. But we could begin by acknowledging that it does not mean calling everyone who disagrees with you a loser, a socialist or a communist, or an enemy of the state. We could acknowledge how difficult it is to talk about humility, let alone practice it, in a society that seems now single-mindedly thinking about what it means to be the greatest, where every day we are being lauded uh, with something that is the best ever in history. We have begun to sound more and more like the disciples James and John, who you remember on that fateful night, the night of the Last Supper, spent their time arguing about who is the greatest, while Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and modeled what true greatness really looks like by washing their feet. But in all of this, the church remained silent. Our children, our grandchildren, are leaving the church at an alarming rate. The numbers do not lie. It is tempting to think that they will come back like generations before them, though there is really no evidence of that. And there may be many reasons that together help to explain that trend, but surely one of them is that they have too long listened to the church's silence. They have watched the term evangelical become synonymous with hypocrisy and disingenuineness. And they have recognized the prosperity gospel for the heresy that it really is. It's simple. Someone says, when the band plays, just bow down to the statue. Or if you're more discreet, just give it a nod and a wink. Do that and good things will happen for you. Refuse and you could lose everything. It is the basic pattern from the beginning of time to forever. Memorize it and you will be surprised how often it pops up. But, says DeFord, I choose to listen to the tug at my spirit and to speak out, not because doing so feels comfortable, but because it feels like the right way to leverage the voice that is God has empowered me with. The choice is ours. When the band begins to play, we can bow down to the golden statue, or we can stand up and find our voice and say, I'm sorry, I don't dance.
Amen.